0: Thank you, musicians. Thank you, uh, Nigel, for leading us. For The guys on the back on the desks as well, those in the back, all acting with their gifts out of love for Jesus and making it rich for us to be together and find that love that God wants for us uh, together. This is the uh, second sermon in the short mini-series that Nigel's uh, Found uh, up, in, and out. We were looking at up last week, at least you were, and I wasn't here. Um, in, in terms of our relationships together in the church, and then from here, out. I was amused to see in the autumn program, which came out a few days ago, um, that the topic for today was in love, Reverend Lance Burks. Oh, <laughs> how did you know Well, the uh, background, really, to this is the fact that Nigel and Dave shared with us a couple of weeks ago, the vision that was forming in their hearts that the church uh, buildings would be open in the coming weeks so that people on the streets in the town could come into here to meet with us and receive something of the love and the care of the Lord Jesus through us. But such ability... (laughs) to reach out to the people in the town around us in the community with love really is contingent upon there being this sincere and real love of Jesus within our hearts for one another. You know, I heard the story of a vicar who was um, preparing a sermon, and then when he had finished that, he went out into the garden to lay the concrete path that needed repairing. And he was sitting in his study and looking out on the, uh, the path and thinking, what a good job I've done concreting that, so smooth and uh, even. And then a little boy ran into the garden to retrieve a ball and ran straight across the wet concrete. Well, you can imagine. The uh, vicar, he leapt from his desk and he went out into the uh, garden and started railing against this poor child, Whereupon his wife came out from her room and said, Darling, I thought you were preaching on love tomorrow. He said, I am. But that was in the abstract, not in the concrete. (laughs) But the reason that Jesus emphasizes this need for love in the fellowship is that Because it is the greatest evidence that we are God's people. There is the love of Jesus being shared one for another. John writes uh, in his Gospel in chapter 13 A new command I give to you love one another. The words of Jesus As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Love one another. In the third century in Carthage in North Africa, there was a man called Tertullian who wrote many things, but one was an apology or a defense actually for the Christian faith against those who were maligning them. And he said this It is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. For they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. See how they are ready even to die for one another. For they themselves will rather put to death. Well, we're going to look at a passage this morning. It's Romans chapter 12. I'm going to concentrate on verses 9 to 13, if we ever get there. Uh, but we'll read from chapter 1. Uh, as a preacher, it's good to use arm movements and uh, Nigel has taught me a lot about this. Um, but the reason that I like to use arm movements is that uh, Lynn gave me a watch just before we went on holiday, walking in the French Alps and so on, and it's one of these activity watches. I think she's trying to keep me fit or something. And um, every hour, if I don't move, it says, MOVE! <laughs> so as I move my hand, you see, I get out of that thing a little buzz on my wrist saying, MOVE. You don't need to know that. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. Paul writes to this church, to us this morning, listen out for what God might be saying to us this morning. And not just us, but to you, me. There are a lot of exhortations towards the end of this passage about what love is. And maybe one in particular will stand out for us in some way. Romans 12, verses 1 to 13. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind If you remember the J.B. Phillips uh, paraphrase, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. He says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spirituals fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I can see you with this eye. This eye is a bit fuzzy still. So I'm trying to see you in the distance. Mike understands, don't you, Mike? A cataract operation. I can see clearly now with this one. This one's going on Wednesday, hopefully. So I'm looking over you like this. I'm looking down like this. It works, doesn't it? No, it's good in the end. Yeah, good in the end. All right, okay. That's what they said when they jumped off the top of the ship. Yeah, okay. Romans chapter 12. Well, let's see it, first of all, in its context. It's always good to see a passage of Scripture in its context. It starts with the word, therefore. Whenever you see the word, therefore, you know what it means. See what it's there for. If we had gone back to chapter uh, uh, 8, the end of chapter 8, this first section, which has expounded the, the way that God has made his salvation available to us in Christ, it would end at verse 38 and 39 like this. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then there's three chapters that are almost like a parenthesis, which deal with the place of Israel at this time in God's purposes, We can't go into those this morning for reasons of time, but when we come to chapter 12, it starts again with this theme of God's love, this great gospel news that God's love has come to us, has changed our lives, brought us into relationship with the Father. Now, in chapter 12, it's, therefore, you've received this love, now work it out, and work it out here in the church. Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And in a way, we work this out in Romans chapter 12, the first few verses, in three attitudes of our lives. The first one is the priority response in a way. It's our attitude towards God. I cannot love you And you cannot love me if I am not open to being transformed by the love of God and having his love flow through me. Our relating to one another in the church is contingent upon our experience of the vital transforming love of God in our lives, yes? Therefore this is primary if it's our desire to see people come up the church, drive into these buildings to be met by people, You, me, whoever it may be, to be shown love. It's because the love of Jesus, that rich love of God, is in our lives. And not through some sort of, oh, I must try and do something, but there to reach out to other people and to one another in the fellowship. And uh, the source of this love? Well, the source of the love is in God himself. It's that agape love. It's the Greek word that's used for the special love that God has shown us. It's that love which is spoken of in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some of you might remember a man called Brian Gilbert, a Baptist minister, who started something called One Step Forward, and in that, he used to speak about the agape love of God. And he defined this love like this Agape love is wanting the highest good for another person, no matter what it costs us, and no matter whether they are worthy of it or not. See, that's God's love for us. No matter what it cost Him, and no matter whether we were worthy of it or not. And this quality, this depth of love, is only possible when we allow God's Holy Spirit to fill us with his love. Do you remember in Galatians chapter 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love. God, working in our lives by the Holy Spirit, brings the love of God into our hearts and lives so that through that love we may reach out in love to others in the fellowship as well as from the fellowship outwardly. God doesn't ask us to do what he doesn't empower us to do. That would be called child abuse. God gives us his ability to... To do what he wants us to do. Saint Augustine of Hippo, and again in North Africa, in Algeria, in modern-day uh, world, Saint Augustine of Hippie, Hippie, Hippo, in the fourth, uh, fifth century, famously prayed, "Command what you will, give what you command." Oswald Chambers a spiritual writer in the last century, says, The Holy Spirit reveals that God loved me not because I was lovable but because it was his nature to do so. Now, he says to me, Show the same love to others. Love as I have loved you. And he goes on, I will bring any number of people about you whom you cannot respect and you must exhibit my love to them as I have exhibited it to you. Any number of people around you that you cannot respect. God puts in our path, it seems, those people who will challenge our ability to love so that we reach out to God for his help to love the unlovely, maybe even in a Christian fellowship. So, We are God's children. We are the people who have been touched by that love which has made possible forgiveness of sins and caused us to have a relationship with the Father. That's you. That's me. That's us. We're God's children together. That should mean, therefore, there is something special about a group of people who have been touched by the love of Jesus individually so that love can overflow to one another. It's something different from what the world can do. People love in the world, of course they do. But this sacrificial, self-giving, generous love, this agape love, is unique. You see, I have a default setting in my life. I have two Lance Burkses. One is the old one, where the default situation is me, my, I, what I want. It's called the old nature or the flesh and I have a new Lance Burks. It's the, the life that has been given to me by the Holy Spirit. Life in the Spirit that I have. A renewed person and being renewed. We all have two natures. The default setting is one of self-centeredness. God is moving our default as we are transformed by his truth to a new default position of love rather than self-centeredness. Does that make any sense? The second other thing before we get on to verse 9 is really our attitude towards ourselves. Sorry, we've been missing out here. Okay. Our attitude to ourselves. This is actually quite crucial in the way that we can love and express love in the fellowship. If I am not secure in myself in the fellowship, if I don't know the role that God has given me in the fellowship, then I can easily be defensive. I'm worried about myself rather than those around me. You may wonder why I put a picture there of a Triumph Herald, if you can see the fact it's a Triumph Herald. When we are in uh, Berkhamstead ministering there, somebody gave me the use of a Triumph Herald to do pastoral visiting and whatever, while Lynn had the lovely family car. And um, this car it was okay, very grateful for it but sometimes I seem to it's going so slowly it seems to be dragging along and the problem was I hadn't attended to the tyres and uh, they were just under inflated, flat and wearing out because of that so you pump them up and then like a fool they became over inflated and the ride was hard and bumpy then they were wearing in the middle rather than at the edges, either way it wasn't very good and you see, these two responses, in a way, are in the church. If we don't know our place, if we're not secure with God in the fellowship, if we're under-inflated, then it's insecurity that drives us. There's a sense that we want to withdraw, perhaps, out of fear of others. Or there's a legalism, I, I will do this, and this is what I'm secure in, but I'm not going to go any further than that. Or a brittleness, a critical... Activity, a uh, critical spirit, and superficiality. Or on the other side, if we're overinflated with a sense of our importance, you know, I'm pretty good around here actually. You know, I'm sorry about those people who don't seem to have many gifts, but I'm okay. If we're overinflated, then there's a misuse of power, or can be. There's a forcefulness that can come into our lifestyle an insensitivity, and abrasiveness. We can be like sandpaper with people and confrontational in our attitudes. Or we are power players and therefore we can manipulate others to get what we want in the fellowship. Oh, how many churches have been ruined by power players who are so overinflated with their understanding of their role in the church? that love flies out of the window. Well, you may know what I'm talking about. But now we come on to the attitude to others. You see, there doesn't seem to be, a, as I read Romans, there doesn't seem to be a particular problem in Romans about lovelessness like there was, for instance, in, in Corinth. But all the verbs, such as they are in these next few verses, are in the plural, plural. it's a a nightmare to translate these uh, verses into English, actually, but won't go there. But what he's really saying is that it's any church. It's every church that these words are being written to. It's this church, DBC. If I was brave enough, and I hate preachers doing this, I'm not going to ask you to do it. I would say, prod the person next to you and say, this is for you. And they will prod back to you and say, this is for you. Listen up, this is for any of us, it's for all of us here. And the headline of chapter 12, verse 9, is really three words, the love, unhypocritical. That's all it is in the, in the Greek, the love, unhypocritical. In English translations, we have difficulty with that. We say, surely there must be a verb, shouldn't there? Let love be genuine or unhypocritical. But no, that's the way it comes. And some see the statements that follow, these eight facets of love between each other in the fellowship, as a description, actually, of God's love towards us. And others say, no, these are exhortations as to how we should work out love. Now, are eight there that I've put up, you probably can't read them all, but we'll look at them all just a little bit more, My next preaching is at 2.30, so we should be all right. I'm out at home hell on a Yaxley's home fellowship. So just hunker down, and we'll get there. The eight of them, they're fine. Right. Um, What's the next one? Love shall be unhypocritical. See, is it description, what follows? Or is it command? (coughs) Actually, it's both. We need to know what the love of God looks like, and we need to work at it. And we need to be disciplined in asking God for today's love in our hearts. You know, many marriages, many relationships get into problems because the love they're trying to show to each other today is the love that was real for them A year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when they were first married. And they say, why have we fallen out of love? Because actually they haven't worked at translating that love into a day-by-day experience. Yesterday's love is no good, as it were, for today. So we come to the first one. Love must be sincere, verse 9. Love shall be unhypocritical. The word that's used in the Greek there is this word hypocrite or unhypocritical, and it relates really to an actor using a mask to be something in the public persona that is not or she's not behind. You know what I'm talking about? Are we good at putting masks on? Actually, yes. Most of us, very good. We don't actually want people necessarily to know what's going on in here, so there's a sweet smile. Well, some of us can put a sweet smile on anyway. Or, uh, you know, we we just want people to feel well of us, so we do something, say something, which doesn't marry up with our thoughts at all. The love shall be sincere. That word sincere, some people say, comes from the Latin sine without, Sarah, wax. You know Peter? Yeah, okay. And the background to this probably was that when people made pottery or porcelain, if there were cracks in it, they would fill it up with wax before they glazed. But an astute buyer would hold the porcelain up to the sun and they would see where the crack had been filled in. But our love, God's love, is without cracks. It's not being filled in. It's not artificial. It's with integrity. So love must be sincere. Not like Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes to kiss Jesus, but to betray him. I can have a smiling face occasionally, but murderous thoughts inside, critical words that follow. I saw, who was it? It was Andrew, wasn't it? You and uh, Trish, you had a roasting tin that you were carrying out before the service started. Actually, they were going to use it afterwards for roast preacher. (laughs) You know, people can say, thank you very much for a lovely sermon. They say it to Nigel all the time. (laughs) But underneath it, (sighs) very obvious actually. But there can be a lack of sincerity. I can speak caring words. Are there? Oh, I'm so sorry for you. But in the heart, there is total lack of interest. Why am I hearing ums? Or my thoughts and my actions are just one so other people can say, Oh, what a nice person they are. We all like to be affirmed, right? We all like people to speak well of us. But it must be out of the sincerity of our actions. The love of God living its way out through us. And if we recognize anything in this of insincerity, we need to pray in that particular area. Lord, give me the security to be genuine in my relationships with people. Secondly, love involves holiness. Oh, it's going to be about quarter past two then. Right, love involves holiness. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. This idea of gluing, sticking, literally that's what it means. Sticking to what is good and totally abhorring what is evil around us. Why? Because that evil, that sin, grieves the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the free flow of God's love is hindered. There's a shadow that comes between us and God. And so I cannot love with God's love because there's evil blocking out that cloud, as it were, blocking out the radiance of God's love into my life. It's like trying to paint white surface with a dirty brush. Even as I try, there's something that's muddy in my life which is hindering my love for other people. Positively, First Thessalonians says, test everything, hold on to the good, avoid every kind of evil. Positively, God wants us to look for the good, to be concerned with the good, to feed ourselves with the good. In Philippians 4 verse 8, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy... Don't bother with those. No, he says, think about those things. Surround ourselves with the good to nurture the love of God in us, and shut off as much as possible that which is evil. Charles Spurgeon said, Christians, you are to love one another not because of the gain which you get from one another, but rather because of the good You can do one another. So I look at people around me in the fellowship and I say, is there something I can do that is good for that person? It's an act of God's love. Love, thirdly, involves family affection. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Literally, it means with brotherly love, showing family devotion to one another. It's sort of two Greek words for love that are sort of put together Philadelphia, which is not cream cheese, it's the love of the brethren, and Philostorge, which is love of the family, the devotion to togetherness in family affection. You see, you can choose your friends, you can't choose your family. And who is your family? We're family as God's people together. I don't know whether the diagrams help you or not, but the Trinity, we see Jesus there. And we see Jesus reaching out in love to us at the cross, as it were. And as we respond to him, our lives become transformed and we find that love of God within us. And the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us and filling us with that fruit of his love so there's a new relationship between us we are rightly and jointly related to the father and we are experienced together the holy spirit's love within us there is that family affection there is that bond only god really can weld that and it's more than feelings It's more than just my nice sentimental emotions. It's obedience to the will of God that we're talking about here. You may well have heard of the Dutch lady Corrie ten Boom, who was incarcerated in a prisoner of war camp in a concentration camp during the Second World War with her sister Betsy. Betsy died in that camp. And there was harsh treatment to them. After the war, Corrie ten Boom, as a radiant Christian, started ministering to people who'd been affected by the harshness of the nazi regime in germany and she spoke of forgiveness and uh, helping people to find relationship again then on one occasion as she was finishing preaching this uh, sermon this address on forgiveness she saw somebody coming to her and at the end of the service they put out their hand to greet Corrie Ten Boom and she recognized that this was the commandant of the concentration camp where they'd been abused and where Betsy had died and he was coming here to reach out in love to her and she says this and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart but forgiveness is not an emotion I knew that too Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, she said, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing happened. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, she says, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known love so intensely as I did then. Why? Because she was obedient, not to feelings and emotions, but to the command of God to love the brethren. And this man now converted was her brother. And she was sister. We look at one another in a fellowship, any church, this church, and these are our brethren, our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the ones whom God has given Jesus for and let him die for us so that we can be related to him. These are the ones who are infused with the Holy Spirit so that we may have supernatural God-given love each for the other. And that's the love that is spoken of here, this family affection, forgiving, healing, bonding, caring love. Because we're family together. Fourthly, love involves it's going to be three o'clock. Love involves honouring. Honour one another above yourselves. This isn't a sort of a fake humility. Oh, please go through the door before me. Oh, you're so much better than I am. Not that sort of thing. It's a true sign of our love for God and our desire to love others when we want them to be blessed more than even ourselves. The story, I think it's probably got different versions, but there's an underlying truth. You may know the uh, painting, the sketch, which is portrayed in so many different forms, The Praying Hands by Albrecht Dürer. And the story goes that he and one of his older brothers, or 18 boys in the family, um, 18 children at least, and the older brother, they both aspired to be painters. And the older one should have had the opportunity to go under a master painter first to be trained. But he recognised that Albrecht had a greater gifting than he had. So he said, look, dad can't pay for both of us, so you go and be trained first. And then when you train, come back and then I'll go. And I will work, and it was harsh work, so that I can pay for you uh, to go to be schooled in art. Well, years later, Albrecht came and said, now, yes, I am famed as a, a painter. Now it's your turn to go forward for, for tuition. And his brother said, no, look at my hands. They're so gnarled and crippled by hard work. I, I can't paint. And Albrecht was so full of remorse and so, so astounded that the honor that his brother had paid him, he said, I will paint a picture which displays what you have done for me. And so that famous praying hand symbol came from a man who honoured his brother above himself. <clears throat> the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the New Testament put it this way, practice playing second fiddle. See, the second fiddle rarely gets the main tune, but boy, does it help with the harmony preferring one another above yourself. Fifthly, it's about enthusiasm. And I don't mean just human, ha-ha, here we go, but rather the spiritual zeal, the joy of serving God that fills our life. Letting God fill us and that desire to serve God, bubbling over, as it were, that's the power of the word zeal, is actually an act of love towards other people. you know why? Because it encourages other people to see somebody full of the desire to serve God. How many people have encouraged you? Because they themselves have been full of a desire to serve the Lord. They've been zealous for God. They've kept their spiritual fervor. And it's encouraged me. It's encouraged you. I can think of people throughout my Christian life. I can think of people... In this fellowship, who are an example of spiritual fervor, and probably without knowing it, just being excited and what they're doing for the Lord is an encouragement, it's an act of love that spurs me on, that spurs others on. Can you think of somebody here? Thank God for somebody here as your spiritual energy giver under God say thank you to God for them. May even say something to them that you appreciate them. Sixthly, ah, it's coming down again. It's now one o'clock. Love endures endurance. Love involves endurance. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. You see, when difficulties come and they do come for all of us, we have a choice. We can turn to self-pity. Oh, poor old me. And what happens then is we don't want to be alone in our pity, so we have a pity party. And invite other people to be sorry for us. That's not love. That's selfish manipulation of others' emotions to help us. Or we can model a trust in God, as we've been thinking in our worship. We can be filled with that hope of the gospel. We can be prayerful. We can be patient. And that models encouragement to others in their times of sadness. Whether it's in the world or whether it's in the church. Again, it's an act of love. So to look to God for ourselves but also for others that they are encouraged by your patience, by your hope in the Lord. You see, there are plenty of people who are discouraged, yes? There are plenty of people who look down. But if they see people who are looking up, they say, what are they looking up to? And their eyes are changed as well. And that self-giving of yourself to the Lord actually encourages other people as well. Love involves generosity. Well, don't probably think we need to say too much about that, except... It's great to be generous, isn't it? Well, we've benefited from generosity in our lives. <clears throat> ben, uh, what is it? Share. The word that's used for share there is the same as fellowship, koinonia. Share with one another uh, what you have with those in need. Uh, I was talking to Nigel um, last a couple of weeks ago probably now, and they were saying they took us a ride in their car, We didn't crash, it was fine, and Elaine drove us back, and she was fine as well. But uh, they said, you know, this car was given to us. And they said, a couple of the cars that we've had in our family have been given to us. And we've been helped in so many ways by the generosity of God's people reaching out. And the last thing, really, there is to say, hospitality. What is the word hospitality? How do we link it? Hospitals, place for sick people, hospitals actually from the Middle Ages onwards were places of refuge. They were places of hospitality where people who were travelling or whatever came to stay. Like the great St Bernard Pass in Switzerland, right at the top of the pass there you've got the hospice, which from time immemorial was a place where people travelling from uh, France to Italy, uh, Switzerland, Switzerland to Italy, Uh, that they were able to stop there and receive hospitality. And it's a great gift to have. The word is philozenia, which is, we talk about xenophobia, fear of the stranger or the other person, different from us. But here it says love of the stranger. This is hospitality. And it was important in the early church, as Paul wrote here, because there were Christian leaders, there were prophets and teachers who were travelling from church to church in a hostile world that didn't particularly like Christians. And so they found these places of hospitality. <clears throat> Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Oh, I'm sorry, Nigel, I do give you some stick, don't I? But we gave hospitality to Nigel and um, Elaine when they were thinking about moving here. Entertaining angels, unaware. (laughs) Yes, God's messengers, unaware. William Tyndale, great uh, 16th century translator of the Bible into English, said we should have... A harborous heart. A place where people who were adrift in life could come and find a safe harbour in the love that we showed them. And we show them. So there are the eight facets of love in the fellowship. Has any one of them stood out to you this morning? Anything that you say, please God, help me work at that one, please. I want to be free to receive your love. I want to be used by you to show your love. So that when people walk up the church drive, maybe in the coming weeks and come into this place, they may be welcomed by sincere, Christ-like love. How are we going to close? oh, I've got another hour, it's only 12 o'clock. Okay, why not use one of the golden olies?